It's creeping up on us. The time for the Radiothon, where you can play your part in this radio station. Just as we do as broadcasters. This is Jen Bartlett, and I'll be here until 6pm with part one of the recent history of Nicaragua with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, Mike Otsakis following up on the Philippines election, Dr Tim Anderson with an analysis of Ukraine, and the very successful Nakba rally. No week that was this week, we're giving Kevin Healy a holiday. Continuing in the series looking at the recent history of Latin American countries, Today and continuing next week, we look at Nicaragua in Central America, bordered Honduras to the north and Costa Rica to the south. Strategically important with the Pacific Ocean to the west and the Caribbean Sea to the east. And my guest once again is Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, activist, broadcaster and PhD candidate Sasha, I will do what I usually do and ask you for a starting date to the recent history of Nicaragua. But I first want to read to you a short chronological list of US intervention. 1894, month-long occupation of Bluefields. 1896, Marines land in port of Quinto. 1898, Marines land at port of San Juan del Sur. 1899, Marines land at port in Bluefield. 1907, Dollar Diplomacy Protectorate set up. 1910, Marines land in Bluefields and Corinto. 1912-33, to 33, Bombing, 20 Years Occupation, Fort Guerrillas. 1981-90, CIA directs exile, Contras, revolution, plants harbour mines against the government. This whole theme of intervention in Nicaragua, I mean, of course, with the United States later on in the 19th century, that ends up becoming one of the most significant um, sort of phenomena in Nicaragua. But if we even go back earlier to when the Spanish were first looking to conquer the country, this has really been the history of Nicaragua since it became you know, a European-dominated entity or country or territory, and more so than a lot of other Latin American countries. And now, there's a number of reasons for that, but chiefly, you know, in the end, it actually does boil down to the fact that the Nicaraguans have always been acutely aware of the designs of imperialist countries on their territory. Even if we go back to the indigenous civilizations of Nicaragua, there were three main ones. They were called the Chorotegano, the Chontal, and the Nikirano. And that's where Nicaragua gets its name from, from the Nikirano tribe, which was the largest and also the most militarily powerful. And it actually took the Spanish about 30 years to properly conquer Nicaragua. So they started at the beginning of the 16th century, so in the early 1500s, and they couldn't actually fully conquer the country until 1529. And they had to draw armies from Costa Rica, Honduras and Guatemala and redivert all of those forces to actually subjugate the Nicaraguan indigenous civilizations. So this whole issue of imperialism and intervention in Nicaragua has really been part of the founding mythology of the country in a lot of ways, the founding sort of years of the country as well. 
they were treated particularly brutally by the Spanish as well for their resistance. A lot of Nicaraguans were sent to Peru and Panama as slaves to work in the mines and on plantations. Others were sent to mines in northern Nicaragua itself, or they were simply given as slaves to local conquistadors. And they were divided up with, with parcels of land, as happened in a number of other Latin American colonies. Nicaragua was pretty much in a permanent state of revolt from the minute the Spanish conquered it. I mean, there were always sometimes low-level insurgencies, but they really didn't stop for the 300 years leading up to independence in Nicaragua, um, which is again indicative of the fact that the Nicaraguan people were treated particularly terribly. And of course, they were one of the poorer colonies to begin with. They didn't have a lot of resources in Nicaragua. It was more so the strategic location of the country. It had a Pacific coast and a Caribbean coast. And it's wedged quite nicely, you know, in the heart of Central America. So it's a very, very prized piece of land. And this manifested in the fact that the British um, actually ended up taking the Caribbean coast from the Spaniards in 1655, and they established what became known as the Mosquito Coast. So the British were very, very keen to have a foothold in Central America. They eventually got Belize as well, which was taken off Guatemala. But in the case of the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, the British cultivated what were called the Mosquito Kingdoms or Mosquito Kingdoms, which were indigenous monarchies. Uh, The British essentially cultivated and turned into their proxies in the region. So that sort of stopped the Spanish from really capitalising on Caribbean trade and Caribbean commerce. And it also meant that the British had a very, very strategic little staging point and base, if you will, in Central America. It's been a prized territory um, as far back as the 16th century, 17th century, as we were saying. Now, of course, by the 1800s, 1811 specifically, the stirrings of independence arrive in Nicaragua as they do across Latin America. And they're inspired chiefly by, to an extent, by events in South America, which is Simon Bolivar, but even more so with Mexico, which is also revolting against the Spaniards. Now, the citizens from one of the largest cities, Leon, they were the first to overthrow the Spanish colonists. So what we had were these sort of little independent cities beginning to sort of overthrow local Spanish administrations and claiming their independence. Now, Spain sort of delayed total independence by creating a new constitution in 1812. So that gave a few limited freedoms to the independence fighters, chiefly to the local elite we're talking about, the educated classes. But that didn't last long, and they continued to push for total independence for Nicaragua. And at first, this manifested in the form of Nicaragua joining a number of pretty interesting integration projects in Latin America. So first and foremost, Nicaragua actually voluntarily became part of the Mexican Empire. So the Mexican Empire emerged in 1821 and it ended up encompassing all of Central America with the exclusion of Panama. Now, this ended up being quite a reactionary empire. I mean, it was an imperial country, but it was developed in part to sort of ward off against European incursion, part of the impetus to create a strong Mexican imperial nation was so that the United States and the Spanish and the French and the English couldn't reconquer or or resubjugate Mexico. And Nicaragua wanted to be a part of that. Other Central American countries, not not so much. Some of those were actually occupied forcefully by Mexico, but that wasn't the case for Nicaragua. And after that, just one year later in 1822, the Central American states ended up breaking off from Mexico and they created 
the United Provinces of Central America. Now, this was a lot more interesting in the sense that there was actually a sort of progressive vision behind the United Provinces. They wanted to create a sort of enlightened liberal democracy in Latin America where all citizens could be you know, treated with dignity and respect and have access to the same basic political rights. And that included, that included former slaves and indigenous people. And Nicaragua was always a supporter of the more progressive factions in these united provinces. Uh, in particular, Francisco Morazan. He was a Honduran. Um, and he came to take over the country in 1829. And he really wanted to push this progressive nationalistic sort of united provinces of Central America. He wanted to expand the public sector. He was fiercely against US imperialism in Central America and in Latin America more broadly. And the Nicaraguan elite were quite supportive of his particular vision for Central America. Now, unfortunately, there were other elites in the other Central American countries that constituted the united provinces that were not so forward-thinking, um, particularly in Costa Rica and even Morazan's native Honduras. They were actually quite reactionary. They wanted greater autonomy for each of the individual countries within the United Provinces, and they were not necessarily opposed to greater trade and greater economic integration with the United States. Uh, and sadly, this actually led to a civil war by the 1830s. Again, Nicaragua supported Morazan, supported the progressive movement, but unfortunately, by the late 1830s, uh, the United Provinces had ended up splitting up. So it, it didn't end up lasting. Each of the countries seceded. And Nicaragua was one of the last to do so in 1838. So they actually held out hope that this could become a project that could last, that this civil war would end, and that eventually either Morazan would retain power or someone with his ideology, with his the same project in mind, would take over and continue to develop the United Provinces. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And Nicaragua eventually accepted this. And in 1838, we have the official independence of Nicaragua. Quite a great deal later, actually, than most other Latin American countries. But as we were saying, it's because the Nicaraguan elite and the Nicaraguan people, I think more importantly, uh, really did hold out hope that the country could be part of something bigger, that it wouldn't just be small countries that could be picked on by the United States and the Europeans, that there was actually hope for a broader Latin American community or, or a unified Latin America, um, which is something that, as we'll see with later history, is really significant in the movements that would have that would emerge in terms of you know left-wing parties and national liberation fighters later on. You're talking about independence from Spain, where do the British go? This is quite significant. So the British managed to retain control of the Caribbean coast, the Mosquito Coast, right up until 1894. I'll get to exactly what happened with them later, but they essentially, they like to play off both sides against each other. So after 1838, we have the development, um, like in many Latin American countries, of the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. They are sometimes called the Legitimist Party, so they're the Conservatives, and the Democratic Party are the Liberals. Um, but basically the same sort of structure of most Latin American countries during this period. The Liberals are generally more progressive, but you know they do have their moderate elements. And the Conservatives, of course, are the ones who are looking to maintain more of a status quo, more traditional sort of older European-style political and economic organisation. And they engage in civil war 
for much of the 1840s and the 1850s. Um, they fight against each other for control of the country. Nicaragua's people are all but forgotten during this period, virtually. But what happens is in 1855, the Liberals are starting to lose the, the military aspect of the conflict. The Conservatives are gaining the upper hand. And what the Liberals do is they turn to what were called filibusters, which were essentially mercenaries, and a particular American filibuster called William Walker from San Francisco. Now, he was well-known. He had a very brutal reputation. Uh, he had served the U.S. government directly for many years in Latin America, either propping up U.S.-backed regimes or forcibly imposing regimes across Latin America um, or in parts of countries to serve U.S. interests. And they approached this man and they asked for him to intervene and defeat the conservative forces. Now, William Walker does this with an army of over 5,000 mercenaries, and they invade Nicaragua at the behest of the liberals. He worked on behalf of the U.S. government. He was directly paid by the United States government, so he was, for all intents and purposes, a U.S. agent. And he crushes the Conservative Party. I mean, 5,000 well-equipped, well-trained American mercenaries, they quite easily defeat the Conservatives. In fact, in less than a year, um, by 1856, he has taken over the country and he installs Patricio Rivas, who is a liberal, um, as a puppet president. But this isn't even, this is not enough for the United States and they officially recognize Walker himself as president of Nicaragua in 1856. So he deposes Patricio Rivas. He declares himself president for life. He reestablishes slavery in Nicaragua and he makes English the sole official language. So this is a really disturbing attempt to recolonize Nicaragua, to turn it into essentially a slave colony for the United States and to Americanize it, to, ang to anglicize it um, and essentially eliminate any trace of Latin American culture and of the Latin American nationalist tradition. So this was really the, the intention of Walker and the US government. And sadly, the liberals played right into their hands. We have what is essentially a US a U.S. proxy state. I mean, it's being ruled by a U.S. mercenary. It's for all intents and purposes uh, a part of the, US, the United States. Their, its economy is totally redirected to benefit the U.S. government. As I said, slavery becomes the main export of Nicaragua during this very brief period. It's a really, really dark and disturbing and sad period in Nicaragua's history. Now, thankfully, thankfully, it doesn't last long because the rest of Central America is looking at this very, very, very cautiously and with a lot of concern and preoccupation because they're thinking, well, if the US government and these filibusters are willing to do this to Nicaragua, what's to stop them from doing it to, say, Guatemala or El Salvador or Honduras? And Walker is aware of this, so he ends up attempting to force Costa Rica to support his presidency in Nicaragua to say to be one of the first Latin American states, in fact, to be the first Latin American state, to say, yes, we recognise this presidency in Nicaragua and we recognise Walker and the US's uh, legitimacy and right to rule in Nicaragua. Now, thankfully, President uh, Mora in Costa Rica refuses and Walker takes drastic action. He attempts to invade Costa Rica as well. He's been backed into a corner. He feels the only way that he can assert his legitimacy in the region is if he also conquers Costa Rica, or at least overthrows this government and shows that there's no point challenging US designs in the region. Now, this backfires spectacularly. 
just um, a year later in 1857, all of the Central American states, so Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala and Costa Rica, sign an official alliance and they declare war on William Walker. And they say they're going to invade uh, Nicaragua and liberate Nicaragua. So they're going to overthrow the US-backed regime and they're going to bring the filibuster and his mercenary army to justice. Now, that same year, he's defeated. I mean, not even this well-trained mercenary army can withstand a four-pronged invasion from all of the Central American states. So he, is, he ends up being removed from power, but at great cost. Walker is a very brutal man, racist. He's very, very spiteful, and he orders the total destruction of Nicaragua's major cities. So most of them, including Granada, Leon, and the capital Managua, are burnt to the ground by the mercenaries, in many cases as they're fleeing Nicaragua. And he orders the uh, arbitrary execution of thousands of Central Americans. So, of course, most of these end up being Nicaraguans, but any soldiers captured uh, from the invading or the, the liberating armies, I should say, um, are executed without fair trial. In, it's an incredibly brutal conflict. But Walker is captured uh, by Honduran forces and he ends up being executed in 1860. So that ends up being, you know, quite, quite an interesting and quite a significant example of Central American or Latin American solidarity. So Nicaragua is liberated and for the next 30 years, really, there's, there's a degree of peace. There's still conflict between the conservatives and the liberals, uh, but, you know, there's generally the impression that things aren't getting better for the everyday person, but there at least isn't constant conflict, you know, every, every five or so years. How did the US government react to the execution of this man? Well, and this is quite interesting, and I think this also shows how um, unscrupulous the U.S. government was, is that Walker actually ended up returning to New York. So he returned to the United States. He fled Nicaragua, but upon his return, the U.S. government saw him, tried to portray him, I should say, as a pariah. They didn't want anything to do with him. They shunned him. They essentially abrogated any responsibility for supporting his occupation of Nicaragua and said that he had done it as a lone agent, as a rogue, essentially. He, Walker, became essentially vilified um, within American military circles and within mercenary circles, too. And he actually uh, was forced to leave the United States. He was actually deported from the US back to Honduras. That's actually how he got executed. So essentially, he, he was just tossed aside, which the U.S. is very well known for doing. Um, of course, they do it with a lot of their Latin American, their U.S.-installed Latin American dictators. Once their usefulness has run its course, or they're seen to be more of a liability than an asset, they're thrown aside, and that's exactly what happened to William Walker in a very, very sort of ironic turn of events. So they ended up giving him right back to Honduras, uh, and Honduras executed him. Some scholars have said that that was an attempt to sort of save face and restore the relationship with Central America. I don't really think that's the case, to be honest. I mean, regardless, all of these countries, even though they liberated Nicaragua, were still very dependent on the United States during that period. But, of course, the United States, I think, would have been aware that Central America couldn't afford to let this happen. I mean, if they had just accepted Nicaragua's uh, essential, you know, annexation by the US through these mercenaries, through this mercenary invasion, you know, it, it just wouldn't have made sense for the US government to assume that there wouldn't be some sort of reaction. I don't think they were expecting all of the Central American countries to do it or to do it with such coordinated action. But, you know, that, that, that was the dynamic at play. And then, as I said, at the end, William Walker became uh, a liability 
to the US government, and that was his face. Now, I was going to return because you asked about the British, um, and I was building up to this because throughout this whole period, the British are essentially left alone. I mean, during the US occupation, they're left alone. There's a degree of, um, I, I suppose, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They, they both were against, you know, the Nicaraguan, or they both had interests in keeping Nicaragua unstable. And of course, when the US occupies the country, the British are quite happy that this has happened because they are worried, again, about the Central American countries or Nicaragua itself reclaiming the Mosquito Coast. Because, of course, you know, this is the trend that's happening across Latin America, territories being reclaimed from European colonisers. And there's a general sentiment that the UK's days in Central America are numbered. And they're not incorrect, because in 1893, we have a pivotal figure rise to power in Nicaragua. Now, his name is Jose Santos Zelaya. He is a liberal general, but he's actually, he's a very radical individual, but he belongs ostensibly to the liberal faction within Nicaragua. Now, he ends up taking over in what is essentially a military coup, and but really it establishes the first progressive nationalist government in Nicaragua, which is, which is quite significant. So he universalizes public education. He builds extensive public transport infrastructure in the form of railway networks across Nicaragua. He introduces tariffs that protect Nicaraguan industry, and he also funds the arts. So he and he and he promotes this sort of indigenismo, which is you know glorifying and reifying the indigenous past of Nicaragua and Central America. But of course, his key policy is Nicaraguan sovereignty. He wants Nicaragua to be a strong, independent, and truly sovereign country. And to this end, he cancels negotiations with the British. So there had been talks between the British and previous Nicaraguan governments prior to this. And in, 19, in 1894, he invades the Mosquito Coast. So he forcibly expels the British soldiers that are there. He, in fact, I mean, he ends up killing a lot and taking some as prisoners of war. And he deposes the monarchy. Now, as I was saying, the Mosquito Coast is a very interesting sort of phenomena because you have an indigenous kingdom serving a very, very reactionary role. I mean, they, they were well aware that they were essentially British proxies. They received all of their, you know, their financing, their military support, their weaponry from the British Empire. And a number of slaves, so slaves from Africa and the Caribbean, were also imported into the Mosquito Coast in a bid to sort of de-Latinize that part of Nicaragua. So the British had actually hoped that by this point, there would be very little actual Nicaraguanness, I guess, in that territory, and that it would be very difficult for Nicaragua to re-assimilate that part of the region into the rest of the country, into the rest of the nation. So they were hoping that if this indigenous kingdom combined with slave communities was kept, was, you know, kept up for all of those decades, um, that Nicaragua wouldn't be able or wouldn't want to reclaim the territory. Now, of course, Zelaya doesn't care about this, he reclaims the Mosquito Coast, and for the first time in, uh, you know, since its conquest, Nicaragua gets, you know, essentially claims what are its modern borders today. And Zelaya, to his credit, also dismantles the Mosquito Monarchy. So he doesn't do anything to the everyday indigenous people, he doesn't do anything to the slave communities, but to those, that indigenous elite that had been financed by the British, they are overthrown, the monarchy is dissolved, and many of them are taken as prisoners and, and taken out of the Mosquito Coast and into Nicaragua, closer to the capital. Early 1900s, Zelaya is getting 
a lot more radical. Um, he's been emboldened by this victory in the Mosquito Coast. So he starts ordering land seizures of large estates that are owned by the liberal and conservative elite, and he begins parceling them out to peasant communities. And additionally, and this is what really concerns the US, he starts negotiating with Germany and Japan to begin the construction of a Nicaragua canal. So this is the first time this issue is broached. Now, of course, it's actually got renewed relevance today, but we'll get to that. Um, But he wants to circumvent US control of trade through the Panama Canal by creating a canal that runs from the Pacific coast to uh, to uh, to the Caribbean Sea right through Nicaragua. And he goes to the Germans and the Japanese to begin negotiations over how that could be made feasible. And the last thing is that he makes public his intention to recreate the United Provinces of Central America. So he actually resurrects this idea, but he says that Nicaragua, um, as the country that has taken the most action against imperialist countries in Central America, has the right to lead. It has the right to essentially rule over these provinces. So this is really starting to scare the United States because they remember what Nicaragua has done in the past and they remember that Nicaragua is willing to take these sorts of drastic and very radical steps to keep U.S. influence out of Central America. Now, throughout this period, the U.S. intervenes, um, as you said at the start of this interview, several times, and it's actually all during the period of Zelaya's rule. Um, so between 1894 and 1910, the U.S. actually sends soldiers into Nicaragua a total of six times. It's an obscene amount of interventions in Nicaragua, um, but most of them are very localised. They're attempts to sort of secure local US corporate interests that Zelaya is attempting to expropriate or divide up or nationalise. And there's no full-scale invasion until 1909. So Zelaya is able to repel each of these other five interventions or they come to a sort of negotiated agreement with the US government. But in 1909, the US not only essentially funds the liberal moderates and the conservatives and essentially starts a civil war, but they actually send their military into Nicaragua. And this is all being funded from neighbouring Costa Rica. So Costa Rica is helping to destabilise Nicaragua in response. So to retaliate, Zelaya invades Costa Rica as well, which I think sadly was a mistake because he then overextended himself and his military forces. And by the end, uh, combined, you know, with the US, Costa Rica and internal Nicaraguan opposition, Zelaya stands no chance. So he ends up fleeing to Spain in 1909. He abrogates power. And the U.S. essentially takes over and occupies Nicaragua again. So we then have, essentially, from 1909, when Zelaya is overthrown, until 1933, Nicaragua once again essentially takes on the form of a U.S. colony. There are Nicaraguan presidents. They are all installed with U.S. support. Now, most of them are conservatives. They were the ones that were particularly opposed to Zelaya's vision for Nicaragua. U.S. troops openly patrol the streets in major cities, they conduct arbitrary arrests and a few hundred executions as well. This is outside of wartime, keeping in mind. This is a very, very brutal um, and hostile environment that Nicaragua is forced to endure once again. And during this period, we also have the emergence of one of the main political dynasties in Nicaragua, and that's the Chamorro family. So the Chamorros um, had always been wealthy. They belonged to the conservative faction in Nicaragua, and they come to 
be the favoured family of the US and of the regimes that the US is cultivating. They're given exclusive rights over a lot of Nicaraguan media. They essentially come to own a media monopoly in Nicaragua. And they become power brokers, essentially. They become the puppet masters behind these US-installed presidents. And they exert significant influence, not only in the political sphere, as we were saying, but also in the economic sphere. So they're responsible for negotiating a number of the economic treaties and free trade agreements with the US government. And they also sign an agreement to the family itself, not even the government, but the representatives of the family, sign a treaty with the US that gives Washington control of any future canal built through the country. So the US, using these oligarchic families, these dynasties, has also further violated the sovereignty of Nicaragua by essentially ensuring that that they can um, control any future canal that is built on the territory so that they will control the Nicaragua Canal and the Panama Canal. Now, of course, this state of affairs is intolerable, is insufferable to the majority of Nicaraguans. They've just endured six interventions. They've seen a very popular leader overthrown by direct US military invasion. And in 1926, well, well before that, there were smaller uprisings and rebellions. But in 1926, there's another full-blown civil war between liberal soldiers that rise up against the US-backed conservative regimes and the conservatives and the US government. Now, this is a very small a very limited conflict. It ends a year later in 1927 um, because the US has threatened another invasion, like a full-scale invasion, like what they did in 1909. So most of the Liberal generals, the leaders of this uprising, agree to a ceasefire. But there's one general who doesn't, and that man is Augusto Cesar Sandino. Now, of course, he is the namesake. He's the inspiration of the famous Sandinista movement, the Sandinista guerrillas, and he is a radical general. So he was born as the bastard of a wealthy Spanish landowner and his indigenous servant. So he, he was always very involved, very you know acutely aware of hardship in his youth. He was, of course, part indigenous. He received his education and his political education more specifically from a number of different individuals and a number of different organisations. Of course, Indigenous movements um, were a very formative part of his youth. The Communist Party was, of course, something else that um, Sandino took an acute interest in. But he was also somewhat involved in sort of spiritualist tendencies that were emerging in the Nicaraguan countryside and also the Catholic Church. He, he had a very well-rounded understanding of Nicaraguan society, um, and he was a very radical individual because of his upbringing and because of his because of his experience in life. And of course, when he sees all these other generals agreeing to the set to a ceasefire just because the US intimidates them, he refuses. He says, it doesn't matter if every other general has agreed to side with the conservatives in the US, I'm going to continue fighting. And he begins a guerrilla struggle. Of course, he can't continue a full-blown civil war because he's lost all of the other generals and their soldiers. But he begins a very effective and a very popular guerrilla struggle against the US-installed regime. And it's so effective that by 1933, the US government hasn't been able to unseat Sandino. They haven't been able to defeat or rout the guerrillas. And they actually have to leave the country because their losses have been so great. So Sandino is a very, very, very effective leader. He's a very charismatic individual. And he draws large numbers of people to this movement. You've been listening to part one of the recent history of Nicaragua in Central America.
and we'll hear more from Sasha Gillies-Lakakis on the program next week. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. If you were a refugee from the violence and brutality of a dictator, you certainly would not be impressed to find his son, now the possible new president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., walking the streets of Melbourne. That was what confronted Filipino living in Melbourne. Not all from the era of Marcos Sr. and his dictatorship, but certainly those who knew the horrific stories of the brutality and violence until he was forced from the country in 1986. Human rights activist May Kotsakis was on the streets, one of a number of overseas Filipinos who made clear that they did not welcome his presence here in Australia. I asked May how the word got out that Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was in Australia and in fact in Melbourne. A member of, you know, the uh, group that was campaigning for his opposition, for Lenny Robredo, actually saw him apparently near the apartment where he was staying in Victoria 1. And when Marcos realized that he was a Filipino, Marcos apparently shake his hands. So then he told us that Marcos, Bongbong Marcos, is here. And that was the uh, time that, uh, you know, that the protest was organized in front of, uh, you know, of the apartment of Victoria 1 in Elizabeth Street. Accident that, you know. It's a bit surprising, isn't it, that the, the future leader of a country has to sort of sneak into Australia and no one knows about it. Probably the government would know about it, but, uh, you know, it wasn't announced because, firstly, his winning is contentious. It's being questioned. He wasn't declared yet, not yet declared as, you know, as the rightful winner, as the president. So, at the time, he, he's probably his trip cannot be, uh, cannot be uh, sort of considered as official. That's why maybe, and, and, and I think, I think his intelligence and I think Marcos would know that wherever he goes, he will be met with protest. But he knows he's got some pretty good friends with the Australian government, doesn't he? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure whether uh, at the time when the election result was announced, whether um, Morrison has congratulated him. There was, a, you know, I, I haven't read any sort of news, but the other president like Biden has congratulated him, Xi Jinping of China congratulated him. He would have, you know, friends just like Duterte, even with the human rights violation, uh, which is very rampant, he, he still, you know, he, the Australian government never, never called attention, never raised the issue of human rights publicly anyway. Well, they're supporting them, aren't they, both militarily, training the troops here, training the troops there. Lots of Australian money goes to the Philippines. Yes, and it is not being announced, isn't it? It is very secret how much money was uh, is being given to the Philippine military. Not only that, uh, what other materials, what other equipment and, you know, personnel is being given to the Philippines. Do we know if Filipino from the military are being trained in Australia? At the moment, we don't. Uh, before, we used to meet them. We used to um, know that uh, there are Filipinos military who have been trained. They actually come to William to the uh, base here in Laverton. Somehow, this time or maybe for a few years, we haven't met them. But we know 
that Australian military are being trained to speak Tagalog, Filipino, and they are being sent to the Philippines on a special well. We met the Filipino teachers, actually two of them. We met them in uh, Federation Square, and they actually introduced themselves. They said that they are going to SBS because the Australian military special forces are being interviewed, and they are training them to speak Filipino because they are being sent to the Philippines. And it actually sort of raised an alarm with us because, you know, they they probably will be integrating with the Filipino masses. That's why they want to learn Filipino language. Tell us what you know about the history of this man who might be the new president of the Philippines. There is actually a timeline that I was, you know, I was reading a while ago, not specifically about Bongbong Marcos, but the whole family, the Marcoses. Uh, Bongbong Marcos became also the uh, congressman. He was governor of Ilocos, where that was where the province where, you know, they, their family belonged. And he became congressman, and then he became senator. In 2016 election, he ran for vice president, but he was defeated by Lenny Robredo, the one, you know, the one who was running for president against him in this election. They have come back, you know, they have actually used the government resources, the money that they have stolen, stolen well, they have used it to actually change the history in the Philippines and to actually change their family image. Apparently, they have hired, what is that, Cambridge Analytica to, to rebrand the family image in social media. So they have done that as early as 1990s. Now, I was actually speaking with uh, a nurse here, and he, she said that I was actually surprised. She said that when she was at school, history, it was mentioned that the Marcos years, you know, Marcos Senior, was the golden years in the Philippines that they have built a lot of infrastructure, but there was no mention at all of the human rights violation or of the plunder, the wealth that they have stolen. There was no mention of that. So even in the school textbooks, they they have already managed to change the history. What is known about the connection between the Duterte family and the Marcos family? At the 2016 election when Duterte ran, apparently the Marcos family helped financially with the Duterte campaign. And Duterte actually was the president who have allowed the body of the Marcos Sr. who was convicted. He was actually allowed to be the body of Marcos to be buried in the Hero Cemetery. Hero Cemetery. And so there was a lot of protest, but it was Duterte who allowed that. And Duterte even declared September 11th as a public holiday in Ilocos. September 11 was the birthday of Marcos Sr. Apparently, it was declared that in Ilocos, that is a public holiday. So the third day helped very much in changing the image of Marcos, the Marcos family. Even at the time, as soon as the third day won the presidency, they have already the plan of having this Marcos the third tandem in this election. So they have planned for it for quite some time how they are going to control the politics in the Philippines. What do you know about the allegations of fraud, violence, murder that preceded this election? This election?
Association of Australia was marred with anomalies, with fraud, both buying, violence, and even the disinformation. Even before the election under Duterte, there has been a lot of red tagging and uh, red tagging of activists, opposition, even journalists that are reporting something that is against Duterte or against Marcos. And actually, the biggest media network in the Philippines was closed by Duterte, the ABS and CBN. When activists or when opposition or anyone who is red tagged, then they are subject to, they can be actually violated. Their human rights can be violated. They can be killed or they can be accused of false charges and they can be imprisoned. There are lots of them, you know, campaign activists who was imprisoned. Uh, the red tagging was so much. So there was actually violence even before the election. There's lots of fraud. There are lots of reports actually even now. There is there is the report there in the social media you can see that uh, ballots are being changed by police. Ballot boxes were dumped in a bacon plot and during the election one thousand eight hundred vote counting machines has broken down. This enfranchised one point four million Filipinos who were not able to vote because of the the vote counting machine that broke down. There were lots of anomalies and uh, a lot of people as well were saying that after they have voted, the watcher there would say, just leave us your ballot, we'll be the one to put it in the machine. Mm-hmm. Of course, some Filipinos, they, they trust them and they just leave and leave the ballot. So we don't know. They probably check the ballot, who is who, who that uh, person has voted and don't know what happened, or whether the the ballot paper was actually put into the machine. There is actually a lot of anomalies in the election. And apparently, uh, when the vote counting machine has broken down, some voting places, polling places, have very low queue. There is one report that in Tondo, which is that is a poor area in Manila, the, the queue is up to 10 kilometers. And the voting was already closed. The polling places were already closed. Apparently, they extended to 9 p.m. There are still people on the queue because they didn't know. They wanted to vote, and some of them went home early in the morning, you know, in the morning because they they wanted to vote. And some as well were very disappointed because they were still on the queue at 8, apparently 8 and p.m. And there were already news that Marcos Duterte has already won. The election wasn't even finished, so there was already a news that the, the two has already won the election. So people are saying that it was pre-programmed. They already know, you know, they pre-programmed the result of the election. That's why even here in Melbourne, there is a polling place in Melbourne. They don't even have a poll watcher, a poll watcher, because the the result is already predetermined. So that's what people are saying anyway. But there are lots of reports of irregularities. So what was the availability for Filipinos living in Melbourne to vote? Uh, there was a, uh, no, overseas absentee voting. And so those Filipinos that are here, they should have registered for overseas absentee voting. I think the close of the registration was October last year. So after they registered, then they would be sent a ballot. And they can vote and then they can mail that ballot or they can go to the polling place here in Melbourne and drop their ballot, you know, that, you know, because it was open from April. The voting was open from April. But there are lots of 
you know, there were lots of uh, Filipinos who were not able to vote because the announcement was done very late. And, uh, and actually, even me, I didn't even know that there was a polling place in Melbourne. There is never, this is the first time, there's the, this is the first election, Philippine election, that there is a polling place in Melbourne. Before, it's only in Sydney and Canberra. So a lot of uh, people were disenfranchised, Filipinos there in Melbourne. And there'd be a lot of Filipinos living outside of the Philippines? About 10 million. Yeah. The, the, the last report, there is about 10 million Filipinos living outside the Philippines in different countries, more than about 200 countries. They are scattered everywhere. And one of the main reasons is poverty, to send money back? Yes, yeah. to work, to find work because of the <laughs> unemployment in the Philippines. So they travel, they go overseas, even though there is a risk especially in some other countries where the laws are very, you know, very difficult, just like in the Middle East. Filipinos are not used to those, you know, kind of policies or society there. But still they go there because uh, the reason is we might, you know, be abused there, but here in the Philippines, it's not only us that will be abused, including our family, because we have nothing to eat, no jobs. So they die hungry. So they just, you know, they take the risk. So there are lots of Filipinos anywhere, even in some poor, even in Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore. So wherever they can find jobs, they go there. The Philippine government is promoting them. The Philippine government is rather than creating jobs for the Filipinos. No, they'd rather promote for Filipinos to go overseas and find work there. That's one way of also pacifying the, you know, the... Um, uneasiness of the Filipinos, because if they are all in the Philippines and they cannot find them, of course, they, will be. they cannot just, you know, accept it. So that's one way of the government to pacify so that they are not going to protest all the times and, you know, so they just send them out, let them find job anywhere and whatever happened to their citizens, they don't care. We know that um, there's been fraud and corruption in elections in the past in the Philippines. Are people mm-hmm. saying this last one was worse? Yes, this last one was worse. This is, you know, because the incumbent, the incumbent Duterte, and the, you know, the candidate is actually has actually joined forces. So they actually control. Just imagine that there is a there was a petition, a petition to disqualify Marcos because Bongbong Marcos is convicted of tax evasion. He has actually a conviction that until now he hasn't paid the tax, I think, millions and millions. So there was petition to disqualify him. But the members of the COMELEC are all appointed by by Duterte. And I think the chairperson of the board of directors of the COMELEC is actually Amy Marcos, which is a sister of Bongbong Marcos. So, so all those petitions were ignored. They were not acted upon, and uh, if they were acted upon, they were not, you know, they, they deny, you know, those petitions. And now there are petitions. The petitions is ongoing. There are uh, the former justice of the Supreme Court has a petition. Another lawyer, uh, Attorney Calleja, has a petition. Not a petition for Marcos not to sit, but to disqualify that he should never have been allowed to run for office because in the Constitution of the Philippines, 
if a person is convicted, if he is already in office, he should be terminated. He has to leave his, his uh, public office. And he would never be allowed to run for public office, anyone who is convicted of a crime. Where do you believe this will lead? At the moment, none in the government will do anything because the whole Senate and the Congress is controlled. They are both controlled by the Marcos Duterte, even the Supreme Court, because if any justice that opposed is being dismissed, it will now be the people of the Philippines who will have the power, as always, to do something about, you know, because uh, many people is not accepting. They are rejecting the result of this election. How are they expressing their concerns? Can they get out on the streets without fear of being arrested or bashed? They're actually doing that. In different parts of the Philippines, there is almost a daily protest. They are doing that. So it's either you go there and protest or don't do anything and still they can still be targeted. Activists, even if they don't do anything, they can still be targeted. And not only that, because before the election, there was this uh, Sambayan. A, this was a formation of different political people, different political, you know, par- not parties, but even mass organizations, different political persuasion. They combined, they unite to oppose Marcos and, and they field uh, candidates. So the candidate for president was Lenny Robredo. And now... That was supposed to be for the election, but even after the election, they are still united, and they, that that are still, you know, I think are going to do something. When Marcos Senior was during the election, and then Aquino won, Aquino actually didn't concede. Cory Aquino called for civil disobedience, not to accept Marcos, because uh, that was also fraud. That was that, that election was also cheated. Same as now. The Filipino people, there will be a lot who will be frightened, of course, but there will be a lot as well who will protest in spite of, you know, in spite of uh, violence. Because they know that that is the only way the Filipinos want uh, democracy in the Philippines, then there's no way there will be democracy under with Marcos Duterte in power. And I was speaking with Mako Sarkis, a human rights activist from the Philippines, and the people are determined that they will have the president of their choice, not the powers that be. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. I spoke at the weekend with Dr Tim Anderson regarding the situation in Ukraine. But first I asked him to focus on the connections between the CIA and the Biden family with Ukraine over many years? Uh, only in general, uh, in a general sense. Um, I mean, the, I haven't really spent too much time on Hunter Biden and his laptop. And uh, But of course, as is well known now, they, they've talked about it being some sort of Russian scam for years and years. And then it emerges more recently that indeed Hunter, uh, Joe Biden's son was... Um, involved in some sort of energy deals in Ukraine. I mean, he didn't really have anything to offer, but it was basically a corrupt link into all of the money that was being poured into Ukraine to try and use it as a weapon against Russia. 
in which they eventually succeeded. And back to 1914, the coup, what was the involvement of the CIA and the US in that? 2014 was uh, the, the coup in Kiev, which effectively changed the, I mean, later on they actually changed the constitution, but effectively changed the makeup of Ukraine, which was in some respects sort of divided between integration with Russia and integration with Europe, but it became much more hostile to to Russia um, after the coup, which now there's a lot of detail of how that happened and how Victoria Nuland, who was the State Department person, was involved in trying to set up the new regime after the Kiev coup. You might recall that the then Prime Minister of Ukraine fled to Russia. He didn't sort of put up resistance, basically. So there was no question of supporting the old regime, but at least he was elected. Uh, What was his name? Yanukovych. But... So then you got a series of governments there which were extremely uh, anti-Russia and um, with the, the members of it actually selected by Newland and the others from the State Department. And of course the CIA was, was involved. It goes without saying there, the US, the US state was involved in that coup. And it then led to immediately the succession of Crimea in Crimea held a, a referendum where they were where they joined Russia effectively and there'd been a centuries old link with Russia of course the problem is of course in this background you've got Ukraine and Russia relationship over the the centuries has been one that there's been a shifting of these sorts of borders and when um Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union then these differences didn't didn't matter so much because the Russian side always had access to the Crimean port and so on so then uh, Crimea, after 2014, succeeded very rapidly. Of course, the, the NATO never accepted that. And there was a resistance in the Donbass battle, southeast Ukraine and southwest Russia. And there's mainly Russian-speaking people with the port, industrial port of Mariupol and so on. They rejected the whole, the whole coup and the new regime in Ukraine. And they came under siege from for the last eight years from these hyper-nationalists, many of them neo-Nazis, who were effectively waging a war against the Donbass region, which is mainly in, on the Ukraine, Lugansk and Donetsk, waging a war against them, and they were effectively succeeding. And only just recently, when President Putin decided to carry out this special military operation, in, mainly in support of the Donbass region, did Russia recognise them as independent republics? So there's a long history to this, but the Biden family was um, was deeply involved in when Biden was when Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, which is to say the Obama administration was deeply involved in that coup, and now we've reverted to that with the Biden administration provoking this um, what they call an invasion of, of Ukraine. Can you explain the the Russian-speaking people? in Ukraine? There's been a very long relationship between what is now called Ukraine and Russia because we had the Soviet Union but even before that we had um, Kiev was a Russian capital at one time and Moscow there's a history to how Moscow became the capital of Russia basically but there was a lot of toing and froing with, with those borders and um, in the the iteration of let's say 1990 when the Soviet Union was being broken down basically you've ended up with a a sizable minority uh, a very large group of uh, 
you know, Ukraine citizens who were Russian-speaking and very allied to Russia in many respects. And that wasn't a problem so long as there was a good relationship between Ukraine and Russia. But with the coup of 2014, then you had enormous strains there because effectively the, the hyper-nationalists, I'll call them hyper-nationalists or ultra-nationalists, uh, many of which have a link back to the Banderists, the Ukrainian nationalist group that collaborated with the Nazis and was deeply, directly involved in the, the purging of Russians and Poles and Jews and Gypsies in Ukraine. They were deeply involved in the beginning of what's now called the Holocaust against the Jewish people, but it wasn't just the Jewish people. The largest number of people killed were Russians, 5% of whom were, were Jewish at that time. So there's a long tradition of this ultra-nationalism, particularly in Western Ukraine, which is hostile to Russians. The situation that sort of re-emerged, if you like, after the 2014 coup, this idea of a hyper-nationalist Ukrainian group which could be used as, I think, um, it's been attributed to George Soros, the, the expression, to be used as a torpedo against Russia to try and destabilize and possibly, hopefully, fragment Russia. This is what the U.S. has done with all of its rivals, you know, with, you notice with China, of course, there's Xinjiang, there's Hong Kong, there's Taiwan. They're trying to destabilize and fragment the big states who they see as their rivals and threatening their, their dominance in the world. How much economic aid and military aid do you believe has gone into Ukraine since 2014? Uh, I don't know the last eight years. There's, there's certainly been a lot and a, a lot of it has been covert through the National Endowment for Democracy. You know, this is a group that was created in the 80s effectively to do what a lot of what the COA used to do in terms of what they call civil society organizations, which are largely propaganda outfits and um, and other sorts of political groups, which they call non-political. They use it in Latin America a lot too. So you've got the NED funding um, and you've got the CIA funding and you've got the State Department funding and you've got some other bodies there, USAID, for example. Also, the, the aid organization is, is really runs in parallel with the National Endowment for Democracy, which is funded by the US Congress, but they claim that it's non-political. So you've got that sort of funding. Then you've got the Pentagon's funding and it's emerged since the, the Russian operation, which began in earlier this year, that there's been large-scale military training. I read one figure somewhere over 20,000 troops uh, and paramilitaries have been trained by the U.S. in Ukraine, even though Ukraine had not even applied to be a member of NATO at that stage. But nevertheless, there was a deep NATO presence. And now, of course, since the Russian operation, you've seen huge additional amounts of military uh, inventory and other other expenses. Uh, I think the, the latest figure was Biden was trying to get $33 billion through Congress and Congress upped it to $40 billion and there was only a handful of um, maybe around 10 Congress people who opposed that and they were all Republicans, which is interesting, isn't it? In, in the 21st century with these wars, hybrid wars I call them, sometimes they call it fourth generation war, Wars that involve proxy armies and propaganda and economic wars and so on. It's the conservatives in the U.S. who are more skeptical of each new war. It's the innovators for these sorts of wars have been the Obamas and and, the, and Hillary Clintons and the Bidens.
what, what used to be called the liberal side of US politics. What do you know about the present president and the entourage around him? So uh, Zelensky is, as everyone knows, a, a former comedian. And by all accounts, he's a type of frontman who was put up by Ukrainian oligarchs, one of the Ukrainian billionaires, as a frontman to present a different sort of face in Ukrainian politics. And I guess it, he did have a broad appeal at the beginning. But um, if you notice, even during the conflict this year, there's been an extraordinary change. One was that there were some quite serious peace talks fairly early on, you know, to prevent the conflict. And, uh, for example, there was a couple of meetings in, I think, in Minsk in Belarus, and then there was a meeting in Ankara in, in Turkey. Turkey hosted it at that time. And there looked to be some quite hopeful signs early on in the conflict. And, you know, the Zelensky administration, Zelensky's representatives, he didn't go himself, but his representatives were went to Belarus, they went to Turkey, and there were the terms of, uh, you know, addressing the Russian grievances, which was that the the use of Nazi proxies near their border, the, the military build-up, the Russians were and expressed it very clearly late last year into this year that, you know, what their concerns were, and they had to, they wanted some resolution over the Crimea and over the status of the Donbas region, Lugansk and Donetsk, which over which there were agreements, the Minsk agreements, which were never complied with. That is to say, there was looking for, they were looking for some sort of political solution uh, for autonomy within Ukraine for the Donbass region, the, the Russian-speaking people of the Donbass region. None of that came about um, under Zelensky or, or, or his predecessor, but then the peace talks that Zelensky's administration was involved in were clearly sabotaged by the NATO the NATO group, which just said, no, no, keep fighting, you're going to win. And they kept saying, you're going to win, even while Russia has taken over most of southeast Ukraine. There's still heavy fighting going on. But it's clear that the, the, the forces behind this, forces outside Ukraine, made the Zelensky administration uh, in Kiev basically back away from peace talks and just keep fighting, which is a disaster for the Ukrainian people because... They're trying to fight against a much bigger neighbour who has grievances, many say are legitimate grievances, and refusing to talk and just fighting is, is really... Well, you've seen what's happened. The, you know, the Mariupol, um, they lost in Mariupol. Um, there's heavy fighting against... But it seems that the Zelensky regime, as is consistent with a what you should call a puppet regime, has really uh, abandoned the earlier hopeful signs of peace talks. What happened to the peace talks? Certainly people in Ukraine wanted them, but the outside players, um, the US in particular, but also Germany and, and some of the others in, in NATO, uh, Britain in particular, have just been saying, no, no, don't talk to the Russians, just keep fighting them, because, of course, the US wants to weaken Russia Ukraine, if there were a genuine Ukrainian voice of a genuine Ukrainian nation there, they would want some resolution with their big neighbour. But the NATO and the US have pushed them into uh, this uh, endless war, which is a disaster for, for the people in Ukraine. Just as an aside, I was told from a second hand from a person who used to live in Czechoslovakia that he believes that, or have been told that they are producing chemical weapons in Ukraine. Is there any truth to that? Yes, well, there was um, 
Under the old Soviet Union, there was experimentation in chemical and biological weapons. Um, now, there, I, I, I don't know that there is even a biological weapons convention to this because the US has been against it. But the old nuclear facilities, chemical warfare facilities of the Soviet Union were, when the Soviet Union was dismembered and, and a separate Ukraine was created 30-odd um, years ago, the US entered Ukraine at that time under some sort of safeguard guardianship status. But has uh, and a fair amount of this has emerged since at first they were saying this is Russian propaganda and then it was admitted by Victoria Newland and some of the others in, in congressional hearings that the US has been effectively playing a type of guardianship role supposedly to provide defensive mechanisms against the use of these chemical and biological weapons but in fact developing those capabilities and so this is the whole question of biological laboratories and chemical weapons in the Ukraine is one of the things that alarmed the Russians, of course, because they found, and the Chinese, I might add, the Chinese have expressed concern about this, that they're concerned that these sorts of non-conventional weapons are being developed and on the border of a big power which has got legitimate reason to be alarmed about it. So um, that was you know, a historical legacy, more or less, that the US played this pseudo role of being a guardian, a, a safeguard of the weapons that were developed there in Ukraine. I think Ukraine renounced its nuclear arsenal at that time, but uh, in terms of chemical and biological, the US has been in there for a good 30 years, and that's been a one of the one of the um, channels of US um, funds, that finance, and and influence within Ukraine itself, even before the 2014 coup. And where's this extension of NATO going to end? Well, now the conflict has alarmed the Scandinavians now and, and the Poles, and the Poles have their own ultranationalism, which is another question, and their own history with, with uh, the Russians. But you've, you've seen that Finland and Sweden have now applied to join NATO, and Russia's response to that has been, well, we don't mind that so long as you don't do a military build-up on our borders. That's, that's what they expressed the most concern about with Ukraine in particular. But Ukraine is a special case because you have a very, very large minority of Russian-identified and Russian speakers in the Ukraine itself. But uh, Russia certainly doesn't want to tolerate a military build-up on its border. And although Finland and, and Sweden have applied to join NATO, which might not be so easy and might take a long time and uh, you know maybe things will change, but um, that's not synonymous with having a a military build-up on its borders. Interesting that Finland, uh, having a big border with Russia, has not done anything like this in a, in a very long time. But anyway, this is a result of, uh, in many respects, the fact that contrary to promises that were made to Russia, uh, the Yeltsin administration back in the early 90s, that there would be no, I think they said, not even one inch of NATO expansion towards Russia and uh, Russia, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, said, what do you need NATO for? And apparently... Russia even applied to join NATO at one stage, but nevertheless, what happened was uh, NATO did indeed expand eastward and many, many states in Eastern Europe joined NATO, seeing some sort of benefit and some sort of incorporation in the, in, in the, the ambit of the European economic bloc, for example. Um, so that's, there's been a huge expansion of NATO eastward, and this is part of the, the reason for the, the concern on the Russian side. Well, big 
losers out of this conflict are both the people of Ukraine and I'd imagine the, the people of Russia, but also the fact that so much food, which goes to often poorer countries around the world, has been delayed or destroyed. Yes, you're, you're, you're very right there. I think the biggest losers are the people of Ukraine in this because they didn't have a government in Kiev which could see its way through to coming to some security agreement with Russia, which is its neighbour. You know, the US is not the neighbour of Ukraine. Russia is the neighbour, and they have to live with each other. And, and the regime in Kiev, after the coup of 2014, simply never had the political will and never wanted to um, engage in that sort of security negotiation with Russia. There's been eight years of effectively civil war in Ukraine, which eventually Russia was provoked into intervening in. So now, as I said, the NATO powers, the, the leaders of NATO, uh, the US, um, Germany, uh, the UK, have been pushing for ongoing war rather than peace negotiations. So that's mainly at the cost of the Ukrainian people there. But as you say, Ukraine and Russia have also, in the past, a very important role in grain production for the world, and a very significant minority proportion of wheat in the world comes from those two countries and now either the production is disrupted in the case of Ukraine because Ukraine has its own food problems and energy problems now or in the case of Russia the there is this economic war which is extended and Russia itself has stopped large part of its exports of grain so that is really uh, in, in, in the first instance it's um, the, the price of grain has gone up and, of course, the price of energy has gone up. I read recently that the, the price of gas is now 250% what it was last year. So there already was a looming energy crisis in Europe. The energy situation in Europe is much worse and, of course, aggravated by this economic warfare which is over which the US is the most enthusiastic. It seems that a fair number of the Europeans are finding a way around what the US calls sanctions. Of course, they aren't sanctions under international law. They're unilateral measures. They're coercive measures trying to bring about some political outcome uh, from an outside power's point of view. But the price of energy's gone up, the price of food's going up, and that um, has an impact uh, globally. We saw 2008, there was a global food crisis linked to energy again at that time because, you know, there are very strong links between energy and food through transport, fertilisers and machinery and so on. So, um, yes, it's going to have an impact on uh, a lot of the world, particularly the countries that are dependent on importing grain. And in the past, the Liberals told us that, you know, you don't need to produce your own food, you can trade. But really, the trading system is also now a mechanism for these um, terrible impacts like sharp, price rises in grain to go up and, and that um, in the past has caused famine in, in many, many countries. In 2008 it caused famine in dozens of countries and unfortunately the doom and gloom headlines now, I think there was one in The Economist I saw today or yesterday that uh, really there is some serious um, food security issues looming as a result of this, this conflict in Ukraine. One particular country that you've been involved with and supporting is Venezuela. What's the situation there with the crisis in energy and perhaps food production? 
Yeah, well, Venezuela has been under enormous pressure and economic war from the U.S. like so many other countries. And um, its economy internally is just recovering from, just starting to recover from several years of serious depression and hyperinflation. They're managing to stabilize the currency now. Economic growth kicked in last year and now Venezuela from a, from a low is, is growing faster than the rest of that is due to its oil industry which they've recovered with the help of some of their allies like Iran in particular. So there's now an interesting transcontinental cooperation between countries that have been attacked economically by the US in this what I call a hybrid war, large part of which are, are these economic wars. But the, the, of course, the energy problem in the world is um, aggravated very seriously by the fact that the U.S. has declared war in different forms against several of the largest oil exporters in the world. First, the invasion of Iraq, and still to this day, the destabilization of Iraq and trying to prevent it having good relations with its neighbor. The economic war with Iran, the same sort of economic war against Venezuela and uh, and. Cuba, its partner Cuba, and now the the economic measures against Russia. So with Russia, Iran, Iraq, and Venezuela, you've got four of the biggest energy exporters in the world, and that's putting a lot of pressure on, on energy prices here. But Venezuela itself, interestingly enough, the Biden administration has perhaps got some inkling of the, the problems they've created for themselves. They've gone back to Venezuela recently, seeing that the, you know, this energy crisis is worse on the Europeans in many respects than on the US. The Europeans, the Western Europeans, for all of their wealth and money, um, are, are in the grip of this, this energy crisis. And so the US is looking for some alternatives. And it's not they can't increase production enough in the Gulf monarchies like Qatar and so on. So they've gone back to Venezuela after all this... Uh, still pretending that this unelected person, Juan Guaido, is the president of Venezuela, which the, the Trump administration did, still pretending that, but giving a limited license, for example, to Chevron and perhaps some other companies to try and re reopen business with the Venezuelans. Now, how the Venezuelans are going to respond to this is yet to be seen. It hasn't happened yet, but the Biden administration did send a team to Caracas just recently to reopen that, seeing that uh, their current preoccupation has been with Russia. But, you know, people aren't fooled. They have memories, and the Iranians, the Venezuelans, the Iraqis all remember what the role of the U.S. there. But nevertheless, business is business, and so it remains to be seen what sort of new uh, channels might be opened up between Venezuela and the U.S. But Venezuela, for its own part, has managed to reactivate some of its refineries which were shut down. And on the food front, you did mention Venezuela's um, own food situation. Venezuela in the past, for 100 years, was really very dependent on food, like a lot of oil economies. Uh, most oil economies really become very lazy. They depend on you know, getting a rent out of their resources, and they don't develop industry and even agriculture. And that was the case 20 years ago in Venezuela. But one of the the little uh, spoken of success stories in Venezuela was that they made efforts over many years, the Chavez uh, administration, the Maduro administration, to try and restart agriculture in Venezuela, and there's been some success there. They are now producing substantial quantities of food and even 
food from Venezuela. Not to say they aren't still importing food. They are importing food, but they are in a better situation in terms of being able to produce their own food. Well, it's a rich country with rich land. that They should be able to do it, but as I said, there's a logic of oil economies which, of course, applied to Venezuela that they neglected agriculture for, for many, many decades. So things are looking a little bit better in Venezuela. They're still very tough because... All of these countries, when the U.S. gangs up and when they get the support of the Europeans, and because the, U- the U.S. Con- has controlled the global financial system th- through the dollar, but also through the Swiss system, you know, which is a, a bank exchange process based in Belgium, but really controlled by the U.S., this has really been one of the means by which they've been able to do real economic damage to a lot of countries, and I think. One of the good things perhaps coming out of the, the terrible war in Ukraine is that it has given an additional impetus to the Russians and the Chinese to uh, look to actually create at a much larger scale an alternative to the Swiss system, an alternative to the dollar, so that the US doesn't have this ability to come in whenever it wants and strangle through its financial mechanisms um, every new country. I think between the US and the European Union at the moment, there's 33 unilateral coercive measures, which they call sanctions, but most of which have no uh, recognition under international law against against these countries. And many of them have now third-party uh, elements, that is to say, the measures against Cuba, the measures against Iran, uh, the measures against Russia. Now the US threatens uh, to act against countries who do business with Cuba or Iran or Russia. So it's not just the countries they're targeting, they're targeting anyone else who does business with them. That's, of course, illegal under international law, but everyone continues to call it sanctions. Um, I say coercive measures is a a better word there, but this is um, the world we live in, and uh, the economic war is really terrible because it's warfare in a real sense, in the sense that it's indiscriminate. You imagine if you're in Syria, for example, and you have these sanctions and third-party sanctions Everyone in the country is affected by it. They can't get investment. They can't sell things. It's extremely difficult. People who want to take money there have to carry cash and so on because the banking system internationally doesn't work because the U.S. controls the banking system. So this is something that affects health systems, affects food security. It affects everything. It's a terrible, indiscriminate form of warfare. I think calling it sanctions is far too generous. Just to focus finally... Tim, on the ninth summit of the Americas being held in Los Angeles between the 6th and the 10th of June, the theme is building a sustainable, resilient and equitable future. From what you've been saying in the last little while, it's going to be a big, a big task. Well, it's, um, it's starting to look like a farce, really. I don't know even if it's going to go ahead at the moment. There's, so far as I know, 20 countries in the Americas, there's 35 countries in the Americas, right, 35 states. 20 of them have said they will not attend because the Biden administration is trying to exclude Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, three of its favourite targets at the moment and subject to its coercive measures, the ones I just spoke about. Brazil, for its part, for other reasons, because Biden hasn't spoken to Bolsonaro there. Bolsonaro says he won't go. All of the Caribbean countries, which are small countries, but a lot of them, are boycotting because they support Cuba and Venezuela, because Cuba and Venezuela have always done the right thing by them in helping with health, education, 
energy security, so on. And um, importantly, Mexico, the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, has said he's not going to attend either. And I think he's been followed by Honduras, which used to be a loyal U.S. supporter, but now has a, a centre-left government. And uh, and who else? Uh, Bolivia also. So you've got a very large number of the Latin American countries um, threatening a boycott there. So I think the the future of this next month's conference in Los Angeles is is hanging by a thread at the moment. I think I believe that the Biden administration has sent a team to Mexico to talk to President Lopez Obrador, but what comes of that remains to be seen. And you're off to Cuba. I've been working on a project which is to um, link up some of the resistance groups, the anti-imperialist groups, something that we're trying to bring about next month, yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you for today, Tim. Welcome, Jan. Welcome. And it's always great to have Tim Anderson on Tuesday time. FreeCR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. A very successful NACPA Day Rally was held in Melbourne and other cities around the world. NACPA Day is the annual day of commemoration of the NACPA, also known as the Palestinian Catastrophe, which comprised the destruction of the then Palestinian society and homeland in 1948, and until now displacement of the majority of the Palestinian people. It is generally commemorated on the 15th of May, as early as 1949, one year after the establishment of the State of Israel. 15th of May was marked in several West Bank cities by demonstrations, strikes and the raising of black flags and visits to the graves of people killed during 1948. The rally in Melbourne was emceed by May Saif and featured Sienna Faraz, Hasib Ali, Mayab Ali, Asil Sayar, Mahi Magrabi and Nessa Mashni. Here they tell their stories. This is the initial Nakba of 1948. In 74 years, the keys to my family home have rusted in the bottom drawer, even as that home still stands. When I finally returned to Palestine, my great-grandmother's prized garden, the backdrop to my mother's stories, lay in disrepair. The ramifications of this catastrophe are seen in oppression and violence, but also in silence. It is the erasure of our existence, and my great-grandmother's dying fig trees. My story is one among many others that sound eerily similar. It is not particularly unique or special, but it is necessary to tell because our stories come together to form a movement, this movement. Today, there is no proof of the power of storytelling more significant 
than the reprehensible murder of Shireen Abu Afeh. Her storytelling focused on giving voices to the humans in the struggle, that we are daughters and sons and we are fathers and mothers, and despite our distance, our hearts and minds are connected through her. Here today it is clear that through our voices she is immortalized in a way no violence can touch. I invite you to approach this Nakba, our catastrophe, not as something just to commemorate. This is not some long past historical event to remember quietly on May 15th every year. The catastrophe persists. The illegal evictions in occupied territories like Sheikh Shadrach, they still occur. The blockade wall around Gaza remains upright. Ethnic cleansing still occurs. It is more obvious, more than ever, that the freedom and protection of the press remains under attack. The Nakba is ongoing and so too is our role in it. Today, let yourself mourn what has been lost and those who have been taken. Find time to reflect on what once was. Take a moment to feel helpless and angry and desperate, but only take a moment. Because as long as this Nakba persists, so will we. There is change happening here and now and it has started with voices like Shireen's. And it continues with yours and mine. Palestine can be found in the land, but her murder makes it starkly apparent that Palestine exists beyond borders. It is also its people. It is this movement. It is the food. It is the poetry. It is this rally today. But most of all, Palestine is alive and found in our voices and our stories as we shout that we are here and we exist unapologetically. Tonight, we put aside our mourning. And tomorrow... And every day following that, we fight for what is yet to be gained, for what will be returned. Because the rust, it can be removed from the keys, and we can return to our homes, and we can sow new seeds in our grandmother's gardens. And tomorrow, Palestine will be free. For many of us Palestinians, we have not had the chance to visit our homeland, or to see our birthplace, or to see the land of our ancestors. But we carry Palestine in our hearts, as do every other oppressed indigenous population. Because you cannot take that identity away from us. You cannot silence who we are. Being Palestinian is more than just where you were born. Being Palestinian is a form of resistance and identity against oppression. So for everyone here who may not have a generational link with Palestine. You are also Palestinian. We are all Palestinian. So we stand together and we say, Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Now I encourage all of you today, after this visual, to take an opportunity to talk to other Palestinians standing here today to hear their stories. Every one of us has something to say. So thank you for coming today. Good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Wurundjeri people of Kulin Nation, whose land I live and work upon, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Palestinians often call it Al Jurh al Nazif, the bleeding wound, Al Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe. The ethnic cleansing of Palestinian people, where more than 900,000 people ethnically cleansed 
from their homeland and hundred others were killed, tortured or detained at the hand of terrorist Zionists. It has been 74 years since our life as Palestinians changed. 74 years of pain, 74 years of fighting the darkness of Zionism. The ethnic cleansing and the massacres conducted in 500 Palestinian villages will remain a shameful spot in the human history and the history of the occupation. According to the statistics of Anirwa, in 2021, there are 5.7 million Palestinian refugees registered with Anirwa, and other millions are not registered in diaspora. All of them deprived by the occupation from the right of return to their homeland, Palestine, while any Jew have no connection whatsoever with Palestine can become a first-class citizen immediately in apartheid Israel. The Resolution 194 by the General Assembly 1948 clearly gives the right to the Palestinian people to return to their homes. But, as we all know, Israel is above the law, supported by democracy like Australia. I come from one of those 500 villages that the Zionists massacre in Haifa Coastal in 1948. At Tantora, the most beautiful beach in Palestine, is my village. On May 23, 1948, six weeks after the infamous massacre of Deryasin, one week after the shameful declaration of the Zionist entity, Alexandroni Brigade, Alexandroni the terrorist brigade, attacked my village from sea and land. The Zionist terrorists started killing any man walking in the village before they went house to house, killing, torturing, detaining all men over 70 years old, either killed or detained. They gathered all the men on the beach and asked them to dig graves of their own. After they finished digging, the Zionists showed them dead. Also, any women showed any form of resistance was killed. The night was attending movement in the history of our peaceful village. More than 250 were killed and a hundred others detained. Because of my grandfather was killed one year before the massacre at the hands of the British soldier, my grandmother didn't know where to go after the, the massacre, especially after the Zionists detained her older son. She walked with her six kids, including my father, who was 13 years old, along with her sister with her seven kids to the nearest village, Al-Fradis, where they were expelled again by the Zionists to the West Bank. In the West Bank, the family journey 
of refugees started and not ended until this moment. In the West Bank, there was no UNHCR, no UNRWA, or any kind of humanitarian organization to look after refugees. So my grandmother ended up in a truck going to Iraq, while her sister ended up in a truck going to Syria. The family separated in two different countries. During the agony, she lost her eight years old daughter and never seen her since. The heroic stories of the Palestinian woman during and after Nakba is often underrepresented and sometimes ignored. My grandmother Nijme, which is Arabic word for a star, was not broken by the theft of her home and the killing of her family members and the detention of her son, the loss of her daughter and the separation from her only sister. She embarked an extraordinary journey to Iraq, a country she had known no one in. This widow learned to become a midwife, to be independent and to support her kids. Not only she did raise her six kids, but also 20 orphans from her, the extended family. Most Iraqis local know her and call her Jeddah, the Iraqi word for grandmother. She was able to work until she reached 80 years old. And the only hope for her was to return and swim in Tantura Beach. Her name was a star, and indeed she was a star. And forever her story will remain in our heart. In 2019, I was able to return to my village after 70 years of the massacre and participated in the March of Return to Tantura, which organized by Palestinian Association in 48. When I reached the village and my friend parked her car, she told me, now we are standing on what used to be the cemetery of Tantura, and your grandfather might be buried here. The village was demolished after the massacre to erase the crimes from the history of the, of the Zionism and has been replaced by two Israeli resorts, Dur and Nahshalim. In 2000, Tidi Katz, a student in the University of Haifa, interviewed ex-Israeli soldiers who participated in the massacre, and he was able to record their shocking claims, which exposed the killing of innocent people of Tantura. But he was taken to the Israeli court and forced to withdraw his thesis. This year, the filmmaker Alan Shores produced a documentary called Tantura. The film documented the massacre according to the Zionist witnesses, which also matched the Palestinian narrative. Free Palestine Melbourne working hard to make this film available in Australia very soon. All this will bring us to the current crime of the assassination of the exceptional woman Shireen Abu Akli.
and exceptional women who dedicated her life to tell the truth about the reality of life under the occupation. She was considered by most Palestinians and Arabs around the world as a family member who was always present in the middle of the hot events to show the ugly and real face of the brutal occupation. Shireen was a, fam a family member, lived with us in our family rooms for 25 years. For example, the world learned the second intifada from Shireen. They learned the Gaza wars from Shireen. They learned Sheikh Jarrah and Al-Aqsa from Shireen Abu Aqli. I'm ending my words with a hope that when we all walk out from this gathering today, we will keep in our minds and hearts the victims of Nakba and the survivors who vanished in exile and never stopped dreaming of Auda. We shall return. The first and only time I went to Palestine was in 2017. I was only visiting. I didn't go as a Palestinian. I saw my homeland as an Australian tourist. Legally, that's all I can go as. Colonies recognize other colonies. It's why I could enter Israel's colonial project with my Australian passport, but not as Palestinian. Fake countries create fake borders and police who gets to cross them and on what terms. I am a settler on Wurundjeri country in the Eastern Kulin Nation. I was born stateless in 1996. I inherited refugee status from my father, who was born stateless himself, also inheriting refugee status. My grandparents fled Palestine in 1948 as the Zionists began genociding their hometowns. My grandfather is from Hittin. My grandmother is from Tereshiha. It took six hours at the border for Israeli officials to finally let us into occupied Palestine, but not before thorough and invasive investigation. We tried to see as much of Palestine as possible in the short 10 days that we were there, crossing checkpoints and driving roundabout routes to get from A to B. We couldn't enter mosques or landmarks without Israeli militia questioning us first. We went back to my grandfather's Hittin, which had been demolished and paved over, barricaded by guards and boom gates. We went back to my grandmother's Tershiha, expecting only to walk through sit with the land, take photos to send to her. We stopped at a kiosk for water and coffee and chatted to the shop owner. He asked us what we were doing here and we told him and then he asked for my grandmother's name. And then we were waiting for two men to meet us at the shop and then we were following their car up the hill and then we were sitting in their living room eating fruit and drinking tea. My grandmother was six years old when she fled Tershiha with her family in 1948. Years later, her cousin returned to the occupied town, and they have been there since. Visiting Palestine in 2017, we met family we didn't even know we had, connections lost, and histories unwritten. We went to Tershiha thinking there would be no one there for us, and that we would have to connect back to the land from scratch. In the end, this wasn't true. We were really lucky but the majority of Palestinians across the diaspora aren't. It doesn't matter. We are all connected to Palestine.
we always will be, whether or not we still have family there. My grandmother died last July. This is my first Nakba day without any direct ancestors who remember a free Palestine. Zionists mistakenly believe that the old will die and the young will forget. But Palestine is in my spirit. It is in my body. It is in my father's body and it was in my grandparents' bodies. It will be in our children's bodies too. We will return to Palestinian soil as Palestinians and we will know with every inch of our being that this land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea is ours. Good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. I would like to say to all the indigenous people in this country, to the Wurundjeri people above all of the Kulin Nation, that I look forward to the day when we meet you at the rendezvous of freedom. Freedom for the Palestinians and for all indigenous peoples. But I've come here to ask something very specific of you and of Australia. In April 2008, my colleague, the reporter Ed O'Lohlin, was driving along a road in Gaza when he suddenly came upon a burning jeep. That jeep had the letters TV written on it in huge red lettering. The man who had stepped out of that jeep to film and who was lying in the road dying was a 23-year-old cameraman for Reuters whose name was Fadla Shanaa. Fadla Shanaa was wearing a blue padded vest with the words press clearly written on it. The same vest that Al Jazeera's reporter Shirin Abuakli was wearing this week when she was shot in the head with a single bullet. Fadl Ashana actually filmed the shell that killed him. But it didn't matter. That shell came from an Israeli tank, but it didn't matter. The Israelis investigated themselves. The occupier investigated itself and found everything was in order. Not one single Israeli soldier was disciplined over the death of Fadl al-Shana. I didn't know Shirin Abu Aqli, Allah yarhamha. Though in the last few days, I have spoken to those who did. But I know enough about Shirin Abu Aqli's work to know two things about her. The first thing I know is that she would have rejected the idea of her own death as something that should be commemorated or acted on specially over and above the deaths and the injuries of the countless Palestinians who experienced the violence of Israel's occupation and Israel's rule every single day. She devoted her life to ensuring that those people's stories were told and that they were in the foreground, not hers. But the second thing that I know is that as a journalist dedicated to uncovering the truth, Shireen would have regarded the idea that the Israeli military could investigate its own actions or that the Palestinian Authority could help it reveal the truth as a sick joke, an absurd, preposterous idea. Which is why I say to all of you gathered here today, you must insist upon an independent investigation of this crime. And you must urge your leaders to back such an independent investigation. 
And you should urge your leaders to back the International Criminal Court in its efforts to hold the Zionists accountable. Not to block the International Court's work as this government has so shamefully done. When you do this, you are doing it not just for Shirin Abu Aqli's sake. You are doing it not just for Fadl al-Shana'at's sake. You are doing it for the sake of every Palestinian trying to live their lives free of the lies and the chains and the brutality of a state that has dispossessed them and tortured them for decades. It is time to stand up for justice. It is time to stand up for transparency. It is time to stand up for freedom. It is time, past time, to stand up for Palestinians. Thank you very much. Now, if you've got a flag, hold it high. If you've got a poster, hold it higher. I'm going to take a video. But I want you screaming at the top of your voices so we can get this heard all around the world, around Palestine. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! From the river to the sea! Palestine will be free! Special thank you to our sister Asil for breaking our hearts and making us cry. So make sure after today, if you want to head to Victoria Market, 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock, on Peel Street, String Bean Alley, she'll be singing and storytelling Victoria Market. Welcome everybody. Thank you so very much. We thought we wouldn't get a very big turnout, but you've really filled our hearts with joy coming out today. Welcome to today's commemoration of Nakba, the catastrophe. The commemoration of the loss of Palestine, but also the birth of our resistance. On behalf of all Palestinians, but particularly those living in Australia, we want to thank you all for being with us and standing for Palestine today. In particular, I want to thank our indigenous communities who've stood with us throughout and to express our solidarity with your struggle in this country, in this colony. Because as Palestinians, we know what it's like to live as a refugee in your country, to be colonised, to be dispossessed, to be told you don't belong, and to be vilified for your resistance. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A Palestinian sister in Canada posted a poem and I want to read it for our Indigenous brothers and sisters, and it's particular to Palestinians as well. We are not here to be considerate towards fragile whiteness. We are not here to choose our words wisely towards coloniser offspring who feel hurt by rage. We are not here to censor our ancestral pain to be accepted in the white mainstream. We are here to honour the suffering and sacrifice of our ancestors. We are here to prevail the long overdue call for justice. We are here to collectively heal from ancestral pain and trauma and put an end to the ongoing exploitation of our bodies and souls once and for all. We are here to make a change. This will be our legacy to the future generation. Led by the blood of our ancestral dedication, resilience and love, that fiercely, fiercely pumps through our veins. That's Dalia Lena. I also want to thank our Jewish community who have broken ranks with theirs and stand in here in solidarity with us. My father was born before the Nakba 
and he shared with my brothers and I stories of magical Palestine, the wonder and the beauty of Palestine before Zionism, before colonialism. In his stories, he would walk us through Jerusalem, the old city, the grand majesty of Aqsa, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, through the olives of his village, the sweet smell of oranges in Yaffa, the smell of freshly baked kark, zaatar, the garlic in the hummus, the bittersweet taste of freshly squeezed pomegranate, the smell of the sea and the fish in Akka, the vast green pastures of Jenin and around, the freshest of fresh air in the Galilee, the sweet, sweet taste of Nefinabilsi, the heat of the Jordan River, the saltiness of the Dead Sea, the taste of a fresh date from an oasis in a Nakab, the hospitality and warm familial warmth of a neighbour's house as you pass by, the dialects of each village and how to differentiate them, the Palestinian traditional forms and how they represented each different region but also the kinship of Palestinians, be they Muslim, Christian or Jew. For my dad grew up in a magical Palestine where it didn't matter. On Monday, Abraham, Ibrahim and Abraham played marbles together. This is the father of our religions, Christian, uh, Muslims and Jews. They played marbles together on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. On Friday, Ibrahim went to mosque on Saturday, Abraham to temple. On Sunday, Abraham to church. On Monday, they played marbles again. Because it didn't matter. This was Palestine before colonialism, before Zionism. But then Zionism came to beautiful Palestine and he told us of the tragedies before 1948. From the first Zionist attacks, terrorist attacks in bombing markets, booby-trapping dead bodies to create more damage when people went to get their dead, the evil massacres of 48 to 50, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine from Tantura to Deryasin and so many others. We will never forget. Let it be clear, there is a difference between Judaism and Zionism. There is a huge difference. To be a Jew is to practice an ancient religion. To be a Zionist is to be a racist. To believe in a Jewish nation in a land of multiple cultures and religions at the expense, in supremacy of everyone else, is racist. That is Zionism. Justice is the key to peace, and justice begins with ending the colonial mindset that is Zionism. Only then will Jews, Christians and Muslims live as my father lived, free to live and worship, just free. Palestine can then return to that magical space in the 20s when my dad was born and we can all enjoy it. This past week we witnessed the assassination of Palestinian reporter and hero Shireen Awakhle. This is what Israel does. This is exactly what Israeli soldiers do. We know that as Palestinians, Israel's murdered at least 50 journalists in the past two decades. One or two might be an accident. 50 is policy. Settler colonies don't need a reason to kill the native. This is what they do from here, in this settler colony, to Palestine. Be it Shireen, 
or Veronica Nelson, Tanya Day, David Dungay, be it Muhammad al-Dura or the Bakr cousins, Muhammad 9, Ahad and Zakaria 11 or Muhammad 11, who were bombed from an Israeli Navy ship as they played soccer on a Gazan beach. Unsurprisingly, Israel found themselves innocent and dismissed it as a tragic accident. Well, the coroner's court is hearing about Veronica Nelson's death in custody. Heartbreaking, unnecessary, tragic, another indigenous death in custody in this colony. And I'm wondering whether he too will find the death to be another tragic accident. Because we know colonies stick together because they're made the same. Shame. And whether that's the sycophantic congratulations we saw last week from ScoMo and Elbow to the State of Israel talking about their shared values, we know they have shared values, and their shared value is the attempted annihilation of an indigenous people and to replace them with a Western Stetland colonial state. They haven't succeeded in Palestine and they won't succeed here. Today, as we come together, we need to commemorate, but we also need to celebrate. I say celebrate because in scenes not witnessed in Palestine since the Nakba, Palestine and Jerusalem came together as never before. Shireen was given a huge farewell in Jenin, then to Nablus, and then to the Al Jazeera office in Ramallah. In all those streets, the people filled them. Tens of thousands of people you could not even move. The next day, the morgue was surrounded with a sea of people, off to the presidential compound for funeral prayers, then to Jerusalem. Along the way, every village people just joined the march, the funeral procession, to Columbia, the refugee camp. They emptied Columbia and joined the procession. They tried to get through Columbia, but were met with tear gas. That's how Israel responded, with tear gas. But then Shireen went through to uh, the Jerusalemites, took Shireen from Columbia through to St. Joseph's. And the next day, in scenes we've all seen, as Shireen in her casket was leaving St. Joseph's, we witnessed what we know about Israel, the brutality of Zionism and apartheid Israel, as police officers used a baton like a colonialiser slashing a forest, making a way, endeavouring to break arms and legs. Shame! And with each swing and a buckled leg... Shireen's coffin got closer to the floor. But each time another Palestinian joined and her coffin never fell. As Palestine will never fall. We held her high as Palestinians around the world hold our heads high. We will never be defeated. Following those scenes of depravity, Shireen was taken through Jerusalem to Beb al-Khalil, the Jaffa Kate. And for a moment, Palestine was liberated. It was filled with tens of thousands of Palestinians, not a Zionist, not an army person, not a police officer to be seen. Palestine was free. So we need to commemorate those lost in the struggle for justice. We need to commemorate those that have died and have been buried in strange lands away from their ancestors. Remember where we come from but we also need to celebrate those that are still holding their keys and the trust and the deeds to their homes. Proud and strong, we need to celebrate the steadfastness, the resistance and the retaking of Jerusalem. We know too well that the killing of Palestinians is not new. Israel's been doing it for decades. 
That's what colonizers do. Israel may have all of the technology, the weapon advantage, Western support, but they, they lack the most important ingredient. Morality, dignity, determination, justice. That's what pumps through the hearts of every Palestinian. Today we honour the steadfastness of our brothers and sisters in Palestine. They remain unconquered but occupied and they remain as a reminder to the powerful of this world, a reminder to all downtrodden people, to all colonised people, that there is a connection, an indestructible connection between an indigenous person and their lands and it can never, ever be broken. The Zionists have counted on the Palestinians forgetting. They've counted on us giving up. But they know we'll never give up. The Nakba was not just a single event. We know the Nakba is an ongoing event. It's happening today in a killing. It's happening today in a housing demolition. It's happening in an expulsion. The Nakba is an ongoing event and Palestinians the world over need your support to resist this. We know that neither the United Nations, the United States, Australia, nor any of the powers are going to end the occupation in Palestine. We know that we have to do it ourselves. Next week, you get a chance to vote. Make yours count. Ask your candidates where they stand on Palestine. Let me tell you, Palestine's a fulcrum. It's a litmus test. If your candidate is good on Palestine, they're going to be good on practically everything else as well. Sue Bolton's here from the Socialists. Come and say hello to her. Israel is the Achilles heel of, for Western propaganda, just like in South Africa as they were supporting F.W. de Klerk and the uh, Departhetists. Western leaders with their empty rhetoric about clashes and we condemn the killing without mentioning who the protagonist might be. We know that they are going to be exposed for their direct support of the apartheid state of Israel. Shame on them. Get your... I support Palestine and I vote sticker. Stick it on your car, stick it on your friend's car, stick it everywhere. Let everybody know that Palestine matters to you and Palestine matters. But there's more you can do. Support the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign. When you're shopping, check the labels. Do not buy anything from SodaStream. If you go to your friend's house and you see something from SodaStream, tell them. Use this as a learning opportunity to teach them about colonialism, about what Israel's doing to Palestine. This is how the world ended apartheid in South Africa. So speak to your student union, speak to your churches, speak to your own union, speak to your work colleagues, talk to your friends. This is how we can end apartheid in Palestine. Friends, I believe we're winning. And I say that because I've gone through a journey myself where I had to explain that I wasn't from Pakistan, that I was from Palestine. People know who Palestine is and increasingly people are realising that we're on the right side of history and support for Palestine is the right thing to do. And they're winning, we're winning, that voice is getting out there, not because the media's on our side, not because the leaders are on our side, because we know they silence us. Whether they silence Bella Hadid on her Instagram or they won't let us put an op-ed in an article or we can't get onto a radio station or TV show, they're trying to silence us, but the truth will find its way. And it's because of people like you that we've been able to keep Palestine alive through arts like a seal of the singing and storytelling, through the demonstrations and public forums like this and so many other ways. And there is no way to actively measure the success of activism, but we know we're winning. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Do more of it. Keep on doing it. Thank you all for coming today's rally.
Thank you for making this a success. And one day Palestine will be free and you will know that you did your bit. When the world forced us and told us to shut up, you stood up. When they tried to silence us, you shouted out. When they tried to belittle us and deny us our freedom, we stood tall, you stood tall. On that day when Palestine is free, you will know you've done everything you need to. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.